Hey there, Vernacular Faithful. Uh, Redcoat here. And Senior joins him. And uh, today we're going to be doing a slight change of pace, uh, as we've been doing throughout this season. Um, we're doing another personal interview. This time we're going to be interviewing Santir. But this time we're going to be talking about Guild Wars 1 and 2, and uh, just uh, Santir's perception of some of the differences between them, and what he felt was like better between 1 or 2, and things like that. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of Guild Wars 1, just to give some background. Uh, and I started playing it in uh, 2005, a few months after it came out. Probably August, September, something like that. I don't remember exactly. And then I, I was interested in Guild Wars 2 as it was coming out, played it when it first kind of came out, and I'll get into some some of that stuff later. But for right now, I want to, to go ahead and just lead it with a disclaimer. I'll probably often talk about things like developer intentions or just different things related to that. I don't have any sort of special personal knowledge of any of the developers type stuff. It's mostly based on things like interviews, wiki comments. Uh, the developers would often comment on the Guild Wars 1 wiki. Uh, they had their own pages there, and it kind of worked as a bit of a forum. Public statements, and just also observations of the games themselves. Alright, so with that in mind, and, you know, with that disclaimer out of the way, I guess uh, let's go ahead and jump in on uh, one of those things derived from those those information sources. So, in previous talks with you, you had mentioned some stuff about when looking at Guild Wars 1 and Guild Wars 2, it felt like um, it was kind of developed without a core intention. Can you kind of dig in on that? Yeah, well, it's interesting because one of the things that I remember being discussed a lot was that they were doing a lot of iterating. And with some of the stuff that I've heard and read, part of what happened is they wanted to do certain things as they're kind of working on Utopia, which was the canceled fourth campaign. For those who are not familiar with Guild Wars 1, just to give a brief overview of how it worked, there were three campaigns which were standalone sort of experiences, and then there was an expansion, uh, the Eye of the North expansion. And they had made the first three. Prophecies was the first one. It's kind of a rebranding of the original Guild Wars, kind of like how Star Wars Episode Four is Star Wars Episode Four: of New Hope and not just Star Wars. And then there was Factions and Nightfall. These were the three campaigns. They came out in that order. And then they were trying to figure out what they're going to do with the fourth one, which was being called Utopia. And as they're trying to explore some of that, they kept wanting to do stuff and had engine limitations. They wanted to do new visions and all sorts of stuff, and were trying to figure out what they could do. And they decided, we want to make a sequel. And so they ended up making Guild Wars Eye of the North as an expansion to kind of put a cap, as it were, on the Guild Wars 1 experience. And, and then they started making the expansion, which we know is Guild Wars 2. So the Eye of the North expansion, I think it was 2007 that that came out. Uh, so a couple years after the first Guild Wars 1, uh, Guild Wars Prophecies had come out, which came out in April 2005, for, for reference. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they worked on just iterating on stuff, is the way they said it. And that's common in, in game design, where you'll like make something, and you're like, okay, this isn't quite right. And it's kind of like taking a piece of iron, and you're hammering it into place, and then you, you have to like reheat it, and then you hammer it some more. It's kind of like you go through these steps of putting it together. So you say, with this iteration process, do you think the, the iteration process that they were working on, it wasn't necessarily focused towards a... Like, it wasn't revolving around a core concept, would you say? Well, what it felt like to me, as I looked at the game, sort of in retrospectus, it which Guild Wars 2 came out in August of 2012, for reference, is they had about five years of development on Guild Wars 2. And it felt like what they were doing with it is they're trying to figure out what cool things could they do. At least at the point of launch, they had the personal story, uh, which I have lots of thoughts on, but most of those are probably more appropriate to uh, another time. I'll probably talk about some of the comparisons to the Guild Wars 1 story. 
And then they have the PvP, sort of the the squad-based groups of, like, five or whatever, mm-hmm. doing PvP, uh, when kind of more of a dedicated PvP scenario. And then they had World vs. World, which was basically hordes of players in sort of large-scale siege battles that tend yeah. to more be about zergs of players, just mobs of players just running around. Like players just throwing themselves against walls of other players. Yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure what the state of them is these days, but anyway, so they have that sort of large-scale PvP experience. Uh, and then they have kind of like the open-world experience as well, which is another part of the... The PvP. thing. Yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of development there. But you'd say with all of these different modes of play, like, there wasn't necessarily something that this is what playing the game is. Yeah, I would say that there were a lot of different stuff. It's kind of like... So, when you're iterating on something, uh, on a game, you often have kind of a, here's what I'm trying to accomplish, right? Right, right. Um, so, like, when you, for example, are, are working on a piece of design, or I'm working on a piece of design, there's a certain amount of, are you messing around to see what you can do, which is possibility searching, it's kind of a design brainstorm. Right. But there's also the aspect of, I know what I want to, what experience I want to create, and you're trying to create that experience. Right. And it felt like this game had a combination of, here's things that we think would be really cool to make, and then also messing around with other aspects of the game, which were more of that exploratory phase, where they're like, uh, what if we pursued this, or this, or this? It was a um, kind of, like, development jazz, so to speak. Yeah. And this is something where it's, like, particularly with the way that the build system was put together, I mean, this is coming from an outsider perspective, keep in mind. But that build system felt like they were designing it reactionarily, mm-hmm. where they didn't have a goal they were trying to achieve, they had an anti-goal. Ah. So more things they were trying to avoid. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's like, like basically, if we're looking from when they're stepping off of the lessons they learned from Guild Wars 1 to Guild Wars right. 2, trying to avoid certain uh, certain player complaints and balance deficits in the first game when approaching builds in the second game. Yeah, so there's some areas where they were trying to add things that players tend to ask for. So the crafting system is a really good example of this. I think it's a useful thing to kind of examine the differences between them. So the Guild Wars 1 crafting system is fairly straightforward. You have uh, some number of crafting materials, a combination of some common crafting materials, and then rare crafting materials. So you have, I don't know, maybe 30 crafting materials total, mm-hmm. so kind of split between them. More of the rare crafting materials, actually, in total, I think. Yeah. But you get more of the common ones, obviously, because I called common. But the way that the crafting system would work is you would take your crafting materials to an NPC, and you'd pay the NPC a fee and give them the, your crafting materials, and they'd give you something in return. So this is the only way you could get armor in Guild Wars 1, for example, is you'd go to an armorsmith, you'd give them a pile of materials, and... And they they pop out an armor. And they pop out a piece of armor. You could also go to a weaponsmith and create weapons that way. But one of the things that you you just heard right there is the only way, or there's two ways of acquiring armor in the game. The first one is through the sort of uh, trade system. So you kill enemies, you get a trophy, like a singed gargoyle skull or something. Yeah. And you get a certain number of those, and you can trade them to an NPC for a piece of armor. Right. You're very limited in what you can do. Mm-hmm. With this, you have to find the NPC, and there's usually only one armor skin available that way. Okay. So if you want any sort of real customization in the armor system, you have to collect crafting materials, you have to collect the gold fee, which could sometimes be quite high for high-end armor. Right. And you trade it to the NPC. That's how the crafting system basically worked. And the Guild Wars 2 crafting system is more about player crafting. So it's taking the idea that players wanted to do the crafting themselves. 
It didn't feel to, to most players like they were crafting when they were handing crafting materials to an NPC. Actually, it, this is kind of relevant. Guild Wars 1 also had material artisans, which could turn certain common crafting materials into other specific rare crafting materials. So, for example, you could take wood and turn it into coal, I think. Mm. And then you could take that with iron to make steel ingots. Okay. So, the dudes that could change uh, certain uh, materials into other materials, which then you could use to make new things. Correct. So, the Guild Wars 2 crafting system has tiers. It's a tiered system where there's like, I don't know. I don't know how many tiers there are at this point. There's like six six tiers initially, something like that. I don't know much, so um, this, this is all on you. <laughs> yeah, so the way that it would work is you would um, get recipes. You could either discover them by entering stuff in, but everything kind of followed a formula. And so it's very, very formulaic. There's like eight crafting lines, including cooking, which was the most interesting one in my opinion. And uh, you would just throw materials at it until you'd get something that would be useful for you. Mm. It's relevant to note that Guild Wars 2 has 80 levels, while Guild Wars 1 only has 20. Mm. And those 80 levels means that you have to be able to craft gear that is level 80 for it to be worthwhile. So there's a lot of grind uh, in that regard to actually be able to make stuff that's useful. And on top of it, there are a ton of tiers of crafting materials. So you remember that I said there's maybe like 30 crafting materials in Guild Wars 1? Mm-hmm. Well... Imagine if each one of those crafting materials had six tiers. I see. Where you have your, your weak blood, and then you have your strong blood, your potent blood, and your ancient blood, and your whatever else, right? Yeah. Where you have, like, it's have, the same crafting material, but it's, it's a higher rank. Yeah, every crafting material has multiple multiple chromas of the rainbow, basically. Yeah. And so you have to, to get the best thing off of a particular crafting material, you need to grind up to where you can actually get the best one. Yeah, so there's a couple of consequences to this. The first consequence is that you just have a lot of worthless tiers of crafting, for for the most part, because mm-hmm. you craft something for a level 23 character when you're level 80 because you're leveling up your crafting skill and it's just not useful for you. Right. The second issue that's very interesting is it makes the lower tiered crafting materials only useful for the purposes of leveling up crafting. Mm. And so you have a lot of loot that doesn't do much for you. Yeah, it's just, all it is there is, like, you're making a little thing so that you can craft better. It's not, mm-hmm. there's not this constant, for lack of a better term, a roller coaster of reward, where... Yeah, it, it makes rewards more meaningless uh, when, if you go into a lower level area and you're getting, you know, your weak blood. Yeah. Well, what used to you have for 240 weak bloods? But in Guild Wars 1, because the materials did not have that tier-based system... Most armors uh, that were higher range would require some quantity of common crafting materials and a slightly lesser quantity of rare crafting materials, mm-hmm. right? So maybe if you're getting really high-end, and by high-end I mean fancy skin. Yeah. Guild Wars 1 very much so had the philosophy of there is a max level to armor, and high-end armor is just its own skin that costs way more. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you would have, say, the high-end stuff cost, like, 350 leather scraps or... or or what have you. Yeah. Leather scraps and maybe Block like... bits or, or whatever. Yeah. And then like maybe 50 of a rare crafting material, like maybe stealing bits or something. Yeah. Right. And it's just, it consumes a huge quantity. Well, when you get to Guild Wars 2, you would end up being like, I can't even use these lower level crafting materials to make my higher level stuff. And I think there's a way to do very inefficient conversion 
mm-hmm. if you have a full stack of a lower level material. But the problem with that is the ratio is such, from what I understand of, of it looking through the wikis and stuff, that you need vast quantities of yeah. like the lowest level material to be able to get some of the highest level because you'd have to like convert 250 to like 10 or whatever it is. Yeah, it makes for much more of a grind and... yeah. I mean, that's also interesting, too, because with the original system, you have that concept of you have uh, common materials and rarer materials, but most things are comprised of both, so even if you're in a lower-level area, you're still getting stuff that you can probably use. Yeah, you're just not getting as much. So, for example, and you could salvage stuff to get crafting materials in both games, but, for example, you might be in, say, the earliest parts of the game, and you salvage an enemy armor drop, which you can't wear in, in Guild Wars 1, and you'd get, like, say... Uh, a piece of cloth, like one, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Whereas a higher level area might give you like 12 to 14. Okay. So the the quantities would be vastly different. Okay. Interesting, interesting. So changing gears a little bit, when looking from uh, Guild Wars 1 to Guild Wars 2, because you just discussed the difference between the crafting systems and yeah. a lot of the changes they made there, one of the things that you noted was the... Because, again, it's kind of like development jazz. They were kind of poking around, figuring out what's the mm-hmm. next thing that they wanted to do. Um, and so uh, one of the thoughts was that maybe they were changing a lot of the systems in the game without necessarily considering the full breadth of the ramifications. Yeah, I think that's true. A really good example for this, actually, is the way that they handled questing. Hmm. So they were like, let's examine traditional questing, you know, where you go up to some NPC with an exclamation point over their head, and you talk to them, and they're like, here's a wall of text. And then you hit OK, and then you go do the random thing like kill 10 rats, and then you turn in it for some experience and stuff. They're like, you know, that seems kind of lame. And yeah, it does have problems. Yeah. So what they ended up doing is a combination of what gets called heart quests or whatever, because on the map they're represented by a heart that you like do stuff, you fill in the progress, and you complete it. And so this is like some area in the map where there's this NPC and there's some random tasks. You just wander into the farmer's field and you feed their cows and it builds up some progress on this thing. And and so it's kind of like this regional area where you can do some activities and stuff like that. It's interesting because when I think of the heart and I think of it being in just a random space and it's just random actions, it's like raising your reputation in the area. Yeah. Kind of has some of that vibe to it. And then there's also dynamic events, which is where something happens, something's going on. Oh no, there's a stampede of, I don't know, Dolyaks or whatever. Um, I don't know that that's actually a thing. But uh, a good example is, hey, the military is trying to dis- defend this outpost from a centaur attack. Okay. For example. And if the players get involved, you know, they can help repel the centaur attack. And then it, it may, maybe goes to another state where the centaur are, like, rallying their forces for another attack. Or, you know, maybe the players don't. And the centaurs take over the outpost. And then the players have a dynamic event to go capture it. And these are a really cool idea. Uh, it's a really cool system. I really like the idea of dynamic events. The problem that I have, fundamentally, is that they completely did away with standard quests. And I think that there could have been points where they could have gone into the player's home instance and put quest NPCs. Hmm. As the game progressed, and as you worked through the personal story, you could have had traditional quests popping up in your home instance, where you could have been given a quest to go do something that could have been quite engaging in and of itself, and would have allowed them a way to be able to introduce additional content that way, to kind of connect things back, where, say, you're playing a char, and you choose the, the mode where, the, the story, where you, your character's father does a thing and runs off, and you never hear from him again. Well, maybe they could have an NPC that would show up that would connect with you, where they wouldn't have to worry about trying to figure out how to work that into the personal story story storyline, but where it could be something that is triggered by reaching a certain level, for example, and, and hook it up that way. 
So I think that there was options for where they could have used a traditional quest system to be able to help keep story continuity going. That is a lost opportunity because they never had a traditional quest system. So while I certainly respect that they went off in a specific direction and were like, let's question the need for traditional quests, I think that they didn't question what they could do with traditional quests, if that makes sense. So it's, um, to use an expression, it's kind of like throwing the baby out with the, uh, with the bathwater. It feels uh, like that, yeah. Uh, it, after a fashion, it's the concept of like, this is an old thing, and we know that there's some problems with it. Let's change it completely, but let's not consider why the old thing was built the way it was. Yeah. It's one of those things where I understand why you'd want to try to fully engage with this new system. Yeah. And there's a lot of great stuff that comes out of it, but sometimes it doesn't accomplish anything new. The hearts can be just as grindy as going into an area and getting a quest to kill ten rats. Mm. It's just presented differently. Yeah. And sometimes there's areas where they could have rigged up traditional quests to hook into things in a way that would have allowed them to call back to previous story events in a way that would not be possible with how they implemented the personal story. Hmm. Well, it's interesting, too, because it you know brings up one of the other points of just, uh, I guess you'd call it the approach to uh, making a quest and stuff like that. Be- yeah. Because, well, yeah. Oh, and just like what the purpose is and what you're trying to accomplish with it, right? You're trying to give the player something to do. Yeah. And it's how do you make that something that the player enjoys engaging with? Yeah, something that the player wants to do. That it's not just something that the player does to get to the engaging content. The actual point of engaging with this content is to derive enjoyment. Yeah, and that's where you have to kind of ask, what is the player getting out of this? Mm -hmm. This is kind of more of a, a philosophical game question. But what is the player getting out of the experience? What are they they getting out of playing your game? And for me, for example, with playing Guild Wars 1, the quests don't really matter. Like, the lore is interesting, sure, but it's it gives me a playground to enjoy a game that I really enjoy the gameplay of in. Yeah, there is a mechanical draw to just doing the quest. Yeah, but there can also be the sort of the mystery of the quest. I'm using mystery not in the traditional sense of the mystery, but in the unknown that you want to learn about sense. Yes. So... It's sort of the idea of, oh, yes, I do want to know what happens to, say, my character's father to call back to that previous thought that I had. I, I do want to know what's going on here. I will uh, I will do this and figure out what's going on, mm-hmm. right? And you can have these sorts of moments where the player is introduced to... Um, new points of information, new yeah. points of characters, or just they deepen an understanding of some something that's already been established in the world. Yeah, so they can engage from it from a Narvazotl standpoint, basically. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because that makes me think, too, you know, thinking back to that, you know, the you have the area, and you have the heart that fills up when you're doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the things that comes to mind just with that particular deal is finding a way to contextualize that, for lack of a better term, that gaining of reputation, where it's like, you know, you're, like, you help the people at the farm, and you actually get to know the people at the farm, and you might gain something from that. Yeah. Just launching off of that, and this is slightly tangential, but one of the things that I always thought would be interesting is if you maintaining an active presence in the area mattered. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way that it is right now, you just kind of go into an area, you do all the heart quests, and you move on, because you've accomplished everything you need to there. Yeah. If there was some sort of, like, value to remaining in the area due to, like, heart quest stuff, or just not so much siloed little areas, but 
if it had more of a broader map meaning. Yeah. That sort of thing could be really cool, but it's also a very complex system that I'm talking about, so... Yeah. Uh, just one last point on that one, because it reminded me of a recent anime that mm. was uh, that came out. It was called Goblin Slayer. Okay. Um, and the whole gestalt of it is there's a character who's the Goblin Slayer, and this is just what he does. He goes out, he kills goblins. He takes all of the goblin-killing jobs. Mm. Um, and the thing about it is that he's known for this in this area mm-hmm. um, because he goes out, he kills all the goblins, and everyone knows that if there's a goblin task on the thing and it's left alone, he's going to take it. Yeah. And it was interesting because in the first episode we established this character and what he does and that he's good at it. And then in the second episode, at the very end of it, another character shows up and is like, oh, I'm going into that area and I heard that there's this guy called the Goblin Slayer who's apparently like really good at killing goblins. I want to find him. I have a quest for him. Mm. And, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that I think uh, a reputation system could really uh, engender is this thing of where you have specific quests that kind of come up because you are for okay so assuming it was attached to farming you are farm master number 99 like you you have you are the king of farming and so some random farmer dude shows up and he's like hey i've got the ultimate farm quest for you yeah and like what you're, di- what you're discussing is, is really interesting it's definitely a different sort of design direction but but um, yeah anyways back to the core thing at hand yeah um so i think it's worth discussing some of the differences in, for lack of a better phrase, the consequences of the level cap and how they handled all of that. All right. So, as I mentioned earlier, Guild Wars 1 had 20 levels, and Guild Wars 2 has 80. Now, it's useful to understand some of the pacing for the games. So, Guild Wars 1 Prophecies, the first one to come out, they didn't really have a sense of what the pacing should be. What you're talking about is, what is progression for a character, right? Now, I've maintained elsewhere that leveling up is usually the least interesting form of character progression in a game. Because you're getting statistical advantage, which often doesn't translate into much meaning, from a mechanical standpoint. Mm -hmm. So when it does is when, say, it allows you to kill an enemy one hit faster. Yeah. Or when it allows you to absorb one more hit of damage. Things like that. Or, like, in Pokemon going first, right? Yeah. So there there are times where it, it has significant meaning, but most of the time, leveling up by itself doesn't really mean anything special, aside from the feeling of, ooh, I leveled up, you know. There's yeah, it has, it has to be contextualized with respect to the rest of the game. Right. So most of the character progression in Guild Wars 1 is based around acquiring skills. Mm. There are a lot of skills in the game, and in particular, one of the major sort of self-directed quests, as it were, is capturing elite skills. The only way to get elite skills is to find a boss that has the skill, kill it, and then use a special item called the Signet of Capture to get the skill. Yeah. This system was something that I really quite enjoyed in Guild Wars 1, uh, as well as what the design of elites were in of themselves. And this meant that most of your character's progression, realistically, could be done regardless of your level. Right. From a technical standpoint. Also, the way that gear works in the game is there's very specific, like, caps. It was not hard in Guild Wars 1 to get max level gear. Now, if you wanted to play dress-up, I mean, we all know fashion souls. Yeah, I mean, every game that has a customizable anything in it, I mean, people will spend hours being like, yeah. I want to make Captain America. So there's there's <laughs> totally fashion wars. Like, you can yeah. do a lot to, to fashion your character. But, you know, if you don't care about that or, or whatever, it's not... It's not hard, hard. To, to get to a point where you can function and do what you need to do in the game. Yeah, and where you, you basically have equipment that's just as good as somebody in, you know, your 
hundreds of platinum valued Fisher of Woe armor. Uh, like it's no better than the the base stuff that you can make in Drakkar's Forge or wherever else, Kynang City. So moving um, to Guild Wars but, 2 and the difference there. Well, I mean, if we're talking about armor, and, and this will become relevant in a moment when I go back to leveling, but in, in Guild Wars 2, there's like some amount of difference progression. So once you get to max level, you can get sort of the baseline armor at that level, which is okay. And then you can get like, and I don't remember the exact system, but there's like, realistically, there's like Mastercraft, I think, which is like green. I'm not sure if that's available at level eight or not. But there's like rare, which is kind of where you try to get to. And then there's elite, which is a bit better than rare gear. And then there's ascended gear, mm. which is like even better than elite. E- even better than elite, and allows you to be able to have special stuff that you need for things. And, and as far as I know, that's where it ends in terms of armor. I don't know if legendary weapons are, well, armor and, and other things, but I don't know if legendary weapons are also... Cons- uh, like um, another tier above? Or... Above ascended weapons, or if there even are ascended weapons. I'm not 100% familiar with that, but the basic point is there are these levels of, like, getting up there Yeah, that have mechanical difference. Like, you need ascended gear to be able to put in stuff for the Fractals of the Mist dungeon area, for right. example. And so it is just it is just better. And that it is a serious grind to get that stuff, from what I can tell. Yeah. So it's a very different... It's not just what is the aesthetic that you're going for. It's There's mechanical significance to the yeah. the higher end gear. But anyway, going back to, to things, with Prophecies, uh, the first Guild Wars game, the rate of progression for leveling was kind of spread out through three quarters of the game to get to level 20, roughly. Right. So what they found is most of the players, once they got to level 20, wanted to do content made for level 20 characters, as you'd imagine. Yeah. Which was, you know, like, not that much of the game at that point. Mm -hmm. So for factions, they ramped it up. You were supposed to get to level 20 by the end of the tutorial, Mm. which was a nice area, but pretty brief. Yeah. Uh, So most of the game... Like, the majority of the game was made for level 20 characters. Mm. The same happened with Nightfall. They just made the tutorial a little less aggressively fast. Okay. So it, it was spread out a little bit more. For reference, the Factions tutorial took two missions, and the Nightfall one takes three, arguably four. Okay. But it's still a relatively short time. It's Yeah, it's still a relatively short time in the overall span of the game. Like, the Factions one is, like, a fifth of the game, maybe, if you're going by mission count. Mm-hmm. A, a fifth, a sixth, something like that. Whereas the Nightfall one is probably comparable in terms of number of missions, but there's more missions in Nightfall. But anyway, so it's a little bit little bit more relaxed of a pace, but it's still the focus was on you getting to max level and then most of the game being for max level. Right. There's a couple of practical reasons for this as well. The first is that the more content you have for max level, the more people taking characters from other campaigns into that one will have to play. Right. Uh, and the more it will be at an appropriate level for them. And that was, I think, perhaps the most significant part of it. But also, the leveling process in Guild Wars 1 is not what the game's about. Yeah. Right? It's about skill collection. Yeah, I mean, it's like a trading card game is about collecting cards. And Guild Wars 1 had a lot of influences from trading card games. Yeah. So what you would end up doing is having most of the content for max levels. The expansion was entirely made for max levels. Mm. Like, level 20 characters was what the expansion was all about. So the result of all of this, when you compare to Guild Wars 2, 
Guild Wars 2 has 80 levels. It takes much longer to get to max level. If you look at the map, it, it tells you what level range the, each zone is for. Now, they do have a system that de-levels you, as it were. I forget exactly what they call it, but it, it effectively has a level cap for each zone. So if you're higher level than that, it lowers your level. Mm. But there's some wonky stuff with loot, so you can still get loot appropriate to your level and stuff like that. But there will be things like you'll still get weak blood from enemies that drop weak blood, for example. Yeah. There yeah. will start start dropping the good blood, as it were. Uh, which is fine. You need some way to be able to get the stuff to grind up your... Uh, to grind up your special crafting. armors and stuff. But anyway, I mean, they also have it, you don't have to craft to get armor. Um, there are other ways. So yeah, so getting so, back to it, yeah. Yeah, so end game stuff, if you're going to be trying to do things at max level, gets severely restricted on where you can actually go. Now, the release of the expansions has helped considerably with the amount of area that actually means there is. Yeah. But there's a significant difference in sort of the pacing of the game when that happens. Yeah. The other significant thing, actually, which to me is the most significant thing, is what they did with the build system and the, and the combat systems. Okay. So Guild Wars 2 is a game that I describe as, I want to love it. I really would love to be able to enjoy it a lot, but I just find the combat really boring. And this goes back to some of the stuff that was going on with the changes that happened between the games. Okay, so briefly, can you sum up what it was about 1 that you enjoyed and then what it is that that 2 kind of deviated there from? Yeah, so my problem with Guild Wars 2's combat, now this is personal. Like, if people enjoy the system, cool, I don't want to take it away from them. Yeah. For me personally, my problem with Guild Wars 2 is that it either did not go far enough away from Guild Wars 1, or went too far. It is, to me, in this weird interstitial area where it needed to be further one direction or another, and I just find what it does to be fairly bland because of this. So, to understand that, if I were to kind of make a continuum, actually, for, for systems, yeah, the place that Guild Wars 2 falls into me is somewhere around halfway-ish between, this is going to be weird, but Guild Wars 1 and Middle Earth Shadow of War. Okay, so um, let's let's pick that apart a little bit. So, yeah. Because I know, definitely, when we're looking at Middle Earth Shadow of War, that's a much more action, very action-y so. thing. So you've got a lot of reactive movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot of situational recognition with the with the enemies, and it's very much about there's a thing happening, get out of the way or attack them, kind of thing. Yeah. So the reason why I say this is it takes a lot of some of the the base ideas from Builders One about skills and builds and stuff, but it then tries to make it a more active combat system. Mm-hmm. So it adds like a specific dodge mechanic. Right. Like you could dodge stuff in Guild Wars 1. I mean, technically there was a state called Dodge for a long while that they ended up folding into Block because they did the same thing mechanically. But if somebody was firing a projectile at you, you could, like, zigzag and stuff and it would go off course and and miss you. But there wasn't a full mechanic that the game was built around for that. Yeah, so Guild Wars 2 has an active Dodge button. What weapon you have out changes what skills you have on the left hand of your skill bar. Um, your skill bar is somewhat rigid in how it's set up. So your first five skills are attached to your weapon. Then you have your skill that is your healing skill. And then you have three utility skill slots. And then you have your elite skill, which is modeled after a MOBA ultimate, which is modeled after a Warcraft 3 ultimate, which works better in Warcraft 3 if you ask me, but that's another discussion. So that's kind of the structure of your skill bar. Guild Wars 1, you just have eight skill slots and you can put skills in there. There are elite skills in Guild Wars 1. You can only have one elite skill on your bar at a time. Uh, and there's some other differences with the build system that I can get into later if we're going to. 
but the sort of the interstitial area. So if you look at Shadow of War, mm -hmm. that game has gems that you can slot into your armor to change some of the effects. So for example, there, there are three colors. So there's uh, ones that can cause enemies to drop more loot, for example, I think it is. Yeah. So like if you put them into your weapons or if you put them into your armor, there's benefits to your followers. Yeah. Uh, there's ones that can give you more health or more damage or cause your weapons to, to, to steal health when you hit enemies, things like that. Yeah. So that's somewhat similar to like the sigil slash rune system in Guild Wars 2. Yeah. But armors themselves have inbuilt effects, which which is a lot more similar to the rune system. And you can also, if you have two or four pieces in an armor set on, then you get additional effects, which is very similar to the rune system. Yeah. The rune system in Guild Wars 2 is if you have, for each rune of that type, you unlock a, something from that rune. Okay. So if you have, like, a superior rune of Balthazar, you can have up to six of them to get, like, the maximum effect from it. Okay, it's almost um, a, like a set bonus. Yeah, it's, it's a set bonus sort of thing. So yeah. Shadow of War has a similar sort of set bonus thing, so you can see a lot of similarities in sort of the build system. Yeah. There are also skills yeah. in Shadow of War that you can unlock, mm -hmm. and uh, you can uh, basically trait them. It's similar to the trait system in, in Guild Wars 2, where you can use specific traits to adjust stuff with your skills. Right. Like add effects, things like that. Yeah. Uh, Shadow of War has similar things. So, for example, you can have it where you can do a sort of a drain effect on an enemy and you can chain it to other enemies if you push a button. Or you can make it do another effect mm -hmm. or allow you to be able to hit a certain other group of enemies with it. Things like that. Yeah, so uh, before we go into further uh, mm -hmm. comparisons there, because we uh, we're comparing Guild Wars 1 to Guild Wars 2, so, yeah. so knowing that Guild Wars 2 has a lot of similarities to how the build systems work in Shadow of Mordor. Going back to Guild Wars 1, what are some of the differences between that and uh, what we've got in Guild Wars 2? So, the most significant difference right off the bat is just straight-up energy. It's resource management. Yeah. Guild Wars 1 has an energy system. Uh, where you have a very sort of strict uh, rate at which you gain energy. You have pips of regeneration on it. Each pip is a third of an energy per second. Right. Different classes have different rates of regen. Right. Most, most of them have four, but some of them have two, some have three. So skills usually cost some amount of energy. Right. And so managing your energy is a key part of what you're doing in Guild Wars 1. Right. In development of Guild Wars 2, they decided to add energy potions. And then they realized that that made energy irrelevant. And so they just removed energy entirely, didn't they? Correct. And so now resource management is no longer a core focus of the gameplay. No, it is not. There are some of the professions that have it built into them. The Thief and the Revenant mm -hmm. have basically energy proxies. But it is not a key part of the game. Mm -hmm. That removal is incredibly significant. There's also, like I mentioned, there's the skill bar differences. Yeah. Where Guild Wars 1 has a very... Guild Wars 1 is more free yeah. with what you can put in, and Guild Wars 2 is a lot more restrictive about what combines with what. Yes. So one of the reasons for this is because the person in charge of balancing found they had a very difficult time trying to achieve the balance that they were wanting to achieve with Guild Wars 1. Mm. And part of the reason for this, like, for this from both uh, why they had a hard time and, and what they were trying to achieve being difficult and all that, Guild Wars 1 makes it very easy to make a very bad build. For example, they will present you the Monk Skill Heal Other, which looks really good. It's 10 energy, 3 quarter second cast time, I forget to recharge because I never use it because it's a terrible skill, but it heals another ally for, like, almost 200 health. Which, when you have 460 HP at max level, somewhere around there, is a big chunk of health. The problem is it costs 10 energy. 
Ah, okay. Monks can't afford 10 energy unless the skill is really good. Ah. Like, heal other is a reasonable skill, but it's not worth 10 energy. It sequesters off enough of your resources that using it makes you way less effective than you could be. Yeah. So this is this is a problem in some of the... And I freely admit, Guild Wars 1 has some serious balance problems. And one of the, the problems, particularly for new players, is that skills that look powerful are not always powerful. Mm-hmm. And Heal Other is a prime example of this. You do not want your monk using Heal Other because it is energy inefficient. Okay. So it's very easy for people to make bad builds that would screw them out from being able to play the game effectively and also prevent them from being able to get parties. The build system was just complicated. You would have your primary profession, and you could have a secondary profession. You'd have access to all the skills from your secondary profession. So your character could have access to, like, two, three hundred skills and, at any given time. But the percentage of arrangements of those skills that is actually useful is much smaller. Yeah, like, depending upon what content you're doing, it's probably not as small as people can make it out to be. But it definitely is a situation where trying to make it so that way stuff that one profession can do doesn't make another profession overpowered can be quite challenging. There's some examples of some very powerful cross-profession synergies. For example, one that comes to mind is the Touch Ranger, mm-hmm. which used some Necromancer skills that cost a lot of energy and steal health from an opponent, mm-hmm. which, at least at one point in time, there was nothing you could do about Life Drain. Like, it just happened. Yeah. And what that meant is these Rangers were able to make these skills cheap enough to actually use. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a two-second recharge, but 15 energy cost is insane. Yeah. But the ranger could drop that really low yeah, um, because of their primary attribute expertise making that sort of skill cheaper. So that's an example of a cross-profession synergy that was really strong. Yeah. Uh, another example is there is an assassin elite skill called War of Displacement that allows you to teleport to an enemy, and it's an enchantment that sits on you that you can cancel to teleport back to where you came from. Mm. This could be used with a skill called Blackout, which is a touch range skill that completely disables the touch person's skill bar, but it also completely disables yours for, like, a few seconds. Mm. This is really, really powerful in PvP, where you could go up to an enemy healer and disable their entire skill bar so they couldn't heal anyone Uh. for a little bit, which could often create openings where you could kill them, like, kill somebody on their team. Okay. But, yeah, stepping back from that for a little bit... Well, and then you could just cancel the teleport. Yeah, and then go back to... Yeah. So, Guild Wars 2 does not have secondary professions, Mm -hmm. and by having a rigid skill bar, people cannot goozle themselves on their build as badly. Right. You can still goozle yourself some, from what I understand, but you cannot do it as badly. Yeah, it's basically by lowering the amount of complexity in the uh, build system in general, they made it much harder to make a mistake. Yeah, exactly. And then making it easier for them to try to achieve... I guess, a flat... Ba- I don't know. Like, what I, what I feel like I heard is that they wanted to have a flat balance where everything was good. You can't do that and make it interesting. Mm-hmm. You don't have any discovery Yeah, with that. So you just gravitate to whatever, like, whatever. feels the best. Yeah. And anyway, um, they also, with removal of energy, had to figure out some metric to balance skills around, which they claimed was opportunity cost. What it seems to be in practice was, doesn't matter, bring the skill that feels like it does the most at the quickest rate. They also greatly simplified the buff and debuff system mm-hmm. into boons and conditions. So Guild Wars 1 had conditions, which were just like generic things like, oh, you're bleeding, you're poisoned, yeah, uh, stuff like that. Or the powerful deep wound, which reduced your max HP. Mm-hmm. And then it also had hexes, which were a debuff, mm-hmm. that the effect depended upon the skill. Right. And then you had a variety of different types of buffs. You had enchantments, mm-hmm. uh, shouts, stances, and just generic skills. 
There's a number of different ones. Uh, yeah. But enchantments, instances could be removed, things like weapon skills, just generic skills, shouts, chants, those couldn't be. Yeah. Um, so in, in general, there are a lot of different types of buffs and debuffs yeah. that showed up in Guild Wars 1, whereas in Guild Wars 2, they were all shrunken to either boons or conditions. Yeah. And that changed a few things. Yeah, it changed some of the individualistic identity of skills. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you could have a skill that in Guild Wars 1 was a hex. Yeah. Whereas in Guild Wars 2, it might inflict a couple of combination of conditions or something. Right. But the conditions all just kind of like pile up and, and whatever and don't feel individually special. Yeah, it's just another condition that can be removed by a condition removal spell. As yeah. opposed to, this is a hex, I need a hex removal spell. This is a shout, I can't get rid of this in this way, I have a different way of getting rid of it. Yeah, so the method of counterplay becomes very straightforward. The genericness of boons means that the effects that you're getting also becomes very limited. Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, there are a few other things like auras and stuff like that, and they have, over time, slowly introduced additional effects. Yeah. But, uh, especially at the beginning, it was very simplified, very streamlined. And that's kind of the thing, is Guild Wars 1 was a complicated game, and as we were just talking about on our complexity episodes, that creates barrier of entry. Yeah. That creates problems. You have to understand the relationships between skills. You have to understand what you're doing with your attributes, how you're spreading your attributes. Like, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of strategic complexity. But there's a lot of depth, too. Yeah. And your choices make a huge difference on how effectively things work. But that also means that they make a huge impact on how effectively things work. Yeah. So if you make poor choices, you're very ineffective. Right. Guild Wars 2 streamlined a lot, right? You have your professions, and that's it. Like, you don't have the secondary system. You have a much more rigid skill bar, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. There are some systems that add certain depth in, but A, they're not taught very well, and B, they often... Um, the effect is not as strong as it could be. Yeah, well, and then, like I said, they removed energy, so they went with this idea of opportunity cost. I've, I've thought about opportunity cost, by the way, as, like, a balancing system. Yeah. And that fundamentally means that you have to make things that are specific opportunities that the player wants to be able to take advantage of. Yeah. I don't think that they did that. Yeah, where it's like, they went with the concept of opportunity cost, but then they didn't specifically say, this is an opportunity that you can reap the benefits of if you have this. Yeah. Or perhaps the best example of opportunity cost that I can come up with at this exact moment in time is actually Guild Wars 1, Mm -hmm. where your interrupt skills, like, if you use an interrupt at the wrong time, you wouldn't be able to use it until it recharged again. Right. And you might really regret using it at the wrong time. Okay. So, Guild Wars 2, what opportunity cost actually meant is everything has a freaking long recharge and a very short period of being active. Mm. So you'd use a thing... And then it'd be done, and then you have forever to wait until it comes back. Yeah, but because you're waiting on it to finish recharging... You're spending most of your time waiting. Yeah, you're spending most of your time auto-attacking and just trying to make sure you're positioning yourself okay. I also feel like some of the positional qualities of Guild Wars 1 are removed in Guild Wars 2. Hmm. Like... You have to actively dodge stuff to dodge stuff because stuff has a lot more strong, uh, m- much more of a homing effect on it. Um, that might just be my perception being off. But anyway, uh, the, a lot of the enemies now, particularly bosses, will project like, here's where I'm about to attack. Stand out of this, like, get out of this spot. Yeah, and I know that's a common thing in a lot of uh, at least raid boss design as of uh, more recent yeah. MMOs, whereas mm-hmm. 
there's an area, get out of the area, and the next phase of the boss happens, and that's all, that's what you have to train for in the raid. Yeah, for sure. So, the other thing that they did that is also highly relevant to this whole discussion of builds is that they wanted to not have a dedicated healer class anymore. Mm -hmm. They were looking at sort of the trinity of healer, DPS, and tank. Tank, yeah. As an aside, Guild Wars 1 didn't have a tank role Hmm. because they didn't have aggro management. Yeah, and that's what tank that's why tanks exist yeah. is to draw attention to themselves and make sure that the people who are squishy don't get hit. Exactly. And that doesn't exist in Guild Wars 1 except for some glitches that happened. So it's something called the gear trick where mm-hmm. if you're holding a bundle item, which is like for example a gear that you pick up off the ground, mm-hmm. then the enemies all targeted you. Okay. But they patched that. So but yeah, so they went with the Trinity that wasn't necessarily represented in Guild Wars 1, but that's what they operated off of in Guild Wars 2. Well, that's what they wanted to not have. Yeah, they wanted to make sure that there was no specific healer class, if I'm not mistaken. That That is what it kind of boils down to. The end result, to me, is that while there are currently nine professions, uh, unless you count elite specialization stuff, but there are nine professions in Guild Wars 2. Profession is what they call the class in Guild Wars. Yeah. And to me, they all kind of play more or less the same, Mm. which is use your damage stuff when it's not on recharge, auto attack most of the time, dodge attacks as best you can, and use your heal skill when you need it. Maybe your utilities will be useful in certain situations. Hmm. But to me, the mechanical play experience of each profession is just... The differences are too nuanced to be meaningful to me. Uh. Because the overall play pattern is the same. Like, if I go into Guild Wars 1 and I'm playing a healer, the play pattern is very different from if I'm playing a DPS-type character. Mm -hmm. And the value as well of specific things is different. You need damage mitigation support. You need disruption. Right. And all of those things are stuff that you need in Guild Wars 2 as well. Mm -hmm. But because of the design of the game, that is... It's always there. Yeah, like, you have to intentionally build a character that doesn't have some amount of, like... Of functional utility. And AoE damage, and, and it, like, all of the things that you need. So, to me, it feels like, in Guild Wars 2, every build is DPS+. plus. Mm-hmm. Like, you're doing DPS and also something else. Okay. And it just made everything feel very samey, which is not to say that that's a bad thing inherently in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And that's where we go back to the Shadow of War comparison that I was making earlier. Yeah. Because in that, ostensibly, everything you're doing is some flavor of DPS. Right. But they feel different. Yeah. And how you're going about doing that DPS is significantly different depending upon how you're setting up your build. Also, the visceral enjoyment of the game is just really well refined. Yeah, and so that goes back to that idea of where Guild Wars 2 kind of went into this middle point and it didn't, it didn't veer off enough into visceral. Yeah. Um, and it veered away from cerebral too much. And also, the setup with the long recharges and stuff just made the pace of play extremely slow. Mm-hmm. Guild Wars 1 is a much faster paced game than Guild Wars 2 is. Mm-hmm. Like, Guild Wars 2, a 12-second cooldown or 20-second cooldown feels pretty quick. Yeah. Guild Wars 1, especially as a monk, a 4-second cooldown can feel long. Mm-hmm. So it's just a faster pace game. Yeah. Can you kind of, like, encapsulate one of the big, the big takeaways in this difference between, you know, Guild Wars 1 and Guild Wars 2? So there's a couple of specific things that come to mind. One, when you're iterating, you need to be iterating towards something, not away from something. 
Two, it's important to think about the full range of consequences of what you're doing. Yes. And this is kind of ties into the previous point. I think the build system in Guild Wars 2 could have, to me, been way better mm-hmm. if they hadn't been working from the starting point of Guild Wars 1. Mm. So the base that you're starting from is really important as well. Yeah. And then ambition management. Yeah. Just having too many things that you're yeah. trying to do and ma- basically bringing it back down to a scope where you're like, we have these one, two, or three things, I mean, if you have the team to handle it, to work on, and we want to polish those things specifically. Yeah. The number of things Guild Wars 2 was trying to do with, I mean, eSport level PvP is what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. As well as the world versus world large scale PvP as well as this huge open world to explore, as well as a personal story with a bunch of voice acting, with branching dialogue options that mattered to all of Bioware. Yeah. All of these things that they were trying to accomplish was a ridiculous scale of ambition. Yeah, that's a huge plate to take on. I mean, if you want to take on all of those different things, you take them on one at a time, rather than all at once, at least. Yeah. And the other thing that's important to remember about iteration is when you're iterating, you're necessarily losing a lot of work. Mm. So if you're spending a lot of time iterating on stuff, and you're making four or five different games simultaneously... Yeah. It's no wonder that it took them five years to get to a game that was not really fully polished and done yet. Mm, But mm. I think that their publisher, NCSoft, was like, okay, you guys have had five years, you need to get this thing out the door. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's something that can happen a lot. I think can happen a lot in development is where you get to that point where you've been working on this thing for a long time, you don't know what it looks like, you've been trying to find find the answer, and then you realize you have gone through 75% of your development budget, and you only have 25% of the time left. What do you do? <laughs> like, other than cut a whole bunch of stuff off of your off of your original product. But yeah. Yeah, if you don't know what the identity of your game is after 75% of the development, um, I mean, this is, in my opinion, this is one of the problems with just, you know, jazz-style development, as I call it, um, where, you know, you're trying to find the main riff but if you can't find the rhythm, if you can't find all of the instrumentation, by the time you're at 50%, you're, you're not there, you know. Yeah. And I don't mean to say that Guild Wars 2 is a bad game, by the way. Like, yeah. I have a lot of complaints about it, but for me, the breaking point is I find the combat boring. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to love about the game, though. It has an amazing character creator. It's got a lot of beautiful music. Some of which I think could be apportioned better. Listen to our podcast from this season about music and games. Mm-hmm. But, but overall, it's good. Yeah, overall, the, the music is great. The world is beautiful. It's expansive. There's a lot to see and do. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a game that I want to love. Mm-hmm. But I just find it boring. Yeah. Well, that's about all the time we have on this one. Or rather, we have plenty of time. But we, we're going to stop it here. So I wanted to thank you all for uh, tuning in and uh, listening to us jaw on a little bit about uh, Guild Wars 1 and Guild Wars 2. And uh, tune in next time where we'll have a more standard lesson for you. We'll be going in to specifically crafting systems, which actually dovetails off of this one pretty well. Until then, everyone, this is Cient here, signing off. And this is Redcoat, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.